1: I'm Melinda Hemelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Martha Claire Morris. She is a nutritional epidemiologist, a professor in the Department of Internal Medicine in the Division of Digestive Diseases and Nutrition at Rush Medical College in Chicago, Illinois. I had the opportunity to hear her speak at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics annual meeting in Boston last fall about her research on the MIND diet, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome, Dr. Morris. Thank
0: you. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
1: Well, I think all of us want to live a long life, providing that life ensures some kind of quality. And as we get older, I think I'm safe to say that we are fearful of losing our cognitive abilities and we want to maintain our independence. And the fact that we can use diet to prevent Alzheimer's disease or degeneration of our brains is really exciting. I am wondering how you became interested in nutritional epidemiology and this topic in particular.
0: Well, I was in training to become an epidemiologist. And when I got pregnant with my first child, I developed a huge interest in nutrition that's Mm -hmm. still there today. It's just increased over the years. And so when I was finishing my degree in epidemiology, I made an emphasis on nutritional epidemiology. And I also had the great honor of working with Dr. Walter Willett, who is probably the most famous nutritional epidemiologist that there is. So I had the best influence there.
1: Yeah. So did you always focus your research on brain function or did you evolve to look at that? Were you also studying other areas?
0: When I graduated, I was recruited to Rush University and we had just gotten funding to do a large-scale population study to identify risk factors that played in the development of Alzheimer's disease hmm. and also cognitive decline with aging. And at the time, this was in the early 90s, there was no sense that nutrition would have any role in Alzheimer's disease. Wow. Yet it seemed to me that... Given that Alzheimer's disease was known as an oxidative inflammatory disease, that there had to be a dietary influence. So I combined my two passions, one for conducting epidemiological research in aging populations and the other in nutrition. The MIND diet is so fascinating to me because it is,
1: and I'll let you tell our listeners all the details, but it is a hybrid of both the Mediterranean diet, which I think most people are familiar with, and the DASH diet, which stands for Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension. And what I thought was so interesting is that if an individual followed either diet, that there was a negligible impact. But if they followed both diets combined, and they didn't even have to follow these diets in combination rigorously, but if they followed them pretty well, that we saw a 35% reduction in the risk for Alzheimer's
0: disease. Yeah, well, I wouldn't call it a combination of a diet. Okay. We are actually preparing an application to do a diet intervention to randomly assign people to a diet to see if it prevented brain neurodegeneration. And we started out with sort of a traditional Greek Mediterranean diet. And then I thought, what am I doing? I just spent the last 20 years studying the individual nutrients and foods that are associated with cognitive decline and dementia. I should be using that research to fashion the diet. So what we did Because both the Mediterranean and the DASH diets are well rounded diets that have been shown in randomized intervention trials to prevent cardiovascular disease. We took each basic component of those diets and then modified them to reflect the best scientific evidence in the field of nutrition and brain neurodegeneration. And that's how we came up with the diet. There are a lot of differences for example, the DASH diet has a scoring to reflect dairy, whereas there is no scientific evidence to support that dairy is important for the brain.
1: Interesting. Um, Okay. So
0: we just don't have a recommendation in the MIND diet. If you like eating yogurt, you can continue eating yogurt, but we didn't make that a component of the MIND diet. Another difference is that Both the DASH and the Mediterranean diets specify about four servings or more of vegetables consumed per day. Well, the literature for dementia has shown that green leafy vegetables in particular seem to be protective against cognitive decline and development of dementia. So we have a separate component in the MIND diet to consume six or more servings of green leafy vegetables per week. Yeah, that's not really much at all. Yeah. And then we have another component of other vegetables. So one serving or more per day of one other kind of vegetable. So that's, you know, about two servings per day versus the four or more that are part of the Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet. Mm-hmm. Uh, we said two because... If you look at the studies that have looked at this around the world, the benefit, that's where the benefit starts occurring, is at the two vegetable servings per day.
1: Interesting. So that's what you mean by a hybrid. It's not a combination of the two. Right. It's choosing the best components of both. Correct. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that for me. Now, I am sitting here with the diet questionnaire that you shared with dietitians at the dietetic meeting in Boston, and some of the questions involve how many tablespoons of olive oil do you consume per day? Do you think that olive oil in particular over other polyunsaturated or, well, that's a monounsaturated fat, but over polyunsaturated fats, do you think that olive oil has a specific benefit?
0: Well, for the brain, we don't have a lot of evidence to specify the olive oil. So we're actually testing that, and we have a diet intervention trial that's just started in the last month, and we've made olive oil part of the diet. So olive oil, as you said, a monounsaturated fat. What we do know from the scientific literature of nutrition in the brain is that A diet that has fat composition that's higher in the unsaturated, that would be mono or polyunsaturated fats, and lower in saturated and trans fats is healthiest for the brain. And polyphenols that are found in extra virgin olive oil have a separate science that is growing. It's really pretty young still, but the antioxidant properties of those polyphenols found in extra virgin olive oil have been linked to better brain health. Mm -hmm. So that's why we specified olive oil in the MIND diet.
1: One of the things that I'm curious about, and I think that the studies that we've seen over the decades have really looked at saturated fat from mostly meat and dairy from animals that have been fed largely a grain-based diet. Do you think you would see a difference if butter, say, or cheese and meat were coming from animals that were fed pasture-based or mostly grass so that the omega-3 fatty acids would be in a more favorable ratio compared to omega-6?
0: There isn't scientific data out there to answer that question. I, I really like to base my answers and my diet on what evidence can support it. So we just don't have the data out there to answer that question.
1: Yeah, it's something that I've been curious about, because of the shifts we've had with agriculture, and how that has impacted, say, the omega-3 levels, we've seen so much higher levels in a pasture-based dairy, for example. And I've always wondered, you know, I've always hoped that we would have research showing that, yes, we need to change our agriculture so that we can protect our health in that way. But let's go on and talk a little bit about some of the other factors of the diet. And one of the pieces of information that I pulled from the Rush University Medical Center that reviewed the MIND diet had to do with the fact that Cheese was something that was going to be limited. But if we were going to follow the diet, not necessarily as rigorously as possible, let's say we fudged a little bit on the cheese, we could still see an advantage with regard to brain health.
0: Right. So there's 15 components to the MIND diet, different food categories. Cheese is one of them. And you get up to one point. For each of the fifteen dietary components, so say you got a zero, say you love cheese and you ate cheese every day, and your score drops by one point. we didn't have anybody in our studies that scored the full fifteen points. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think our top score was thirteen, so even people who didn't follow every component. To get the, the full score, those people also were showing a reduced risk of Alzheimer's disease by 53% if they were in the top tertile of score.
1: Mm, that's very encouraging.
0: Yeah. And the Mediterranean and DASH diets also had significant reductions in risk of Alzheimer's if you scored in the, the top tertile of scores on those diets. But what was interesting was that even scoring moderately on the MIND diet, you still saw a statistically significant 35% reduction in the risk of Alzheimer's disease, whereas neither of the Mediterranean or DASH diets had a significant reduction with moderately following those diets. Hmm. So it probably, you know, my interpretation of that is that we did make the food items specific to the best scientific evidence for nutrition in the brain. Mm
1: -hmm. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Fluth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. Martha Claire Morris. She is the founder of the Mind Diet and Recommendations to Protect Ourselves Against the Development of Alzheimer's Disease. I want to talk about the use of fish in the diet because I hear so many people say, well, I really don't like fish and there are certain kinds of fish that are better than others. Those that come from cold water that have high omega-3 levels and yet we find fish to be protective. There's also the issue of mercury. We know there are a lot of contaminants in, in our oceans. What do you tell people about eating fish?
0: We actually just Published this study last year in JAMA, one of our epidemiological or observational cohort studies. We have a comprehensive assessment of this, this cohort, their diets on an annual basis. We also do neurologic evaluations on them every year. And when they die, they've agreed to donate their brains. So we were able to look at seafood consumption over their older years of life, and then relate that to the pathologies that occur in the brain, Alzheimer's pathology, stroke pathology, Lewy body pathology, which is associated with Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. And what we found was that the seafood consumption was associated with less Alzheimer neuropathology in the brain. And that seafood consumption was also associated with, it was a small correlation, but we did see a correlation that was significant with mercury levels in the brain. But when we looked at the mercury levels measured in the brain tissue, we saw no association with an increase in any of the neuropathology. That's
1: fascinating. How do you explain that?
0: Well... This was a Midwest population. Mm -hmm. We did have quite a few people that were consuming seafood several times a week, but really not high seafood consumption that you might find in some other type of population. So we couldn't generalize the findings to a community that would have really high levels of seafood consumption and maybe very much higher levels of gray mercury. So it could be that the levels that most people consume of fish don't present with a high exposure to mercury.
1: I see. I usually recommend that consumers choose wild-caught fish rather than farmed because we're trying to get at higher levels of omega-3 fatty acids. Did you make any distinction in your populations of whether or not the fish was farmed versus wild-caught?
0: No, we okay. didn't have that information. I don't know of very many studies that do. And I don't know of any study that has that kind of information, perhaps in part because participants wouldn't even know. Sure. Maybe they're not paying attention. Maybe they don't care. <laughs> right, right. Maybe it's uh, cost-based. But yes, I'm not aware of any study that has that kind of data.
1: Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned that when you're counting up your fish servings, you are not including shellfish. Is that because you're specifically looking at the omega-3 levels?
0: Well, in the study that I just told you about, we did include shrimp, lobster, clams. So we did include shellfish.
1: But in the MIND diet test, the questionnaire for the MIND diet, it specifically says not including shellfish.
0: So, yeah, there's really, I would say that most of the studies that have reported on this have specifically grouped the fish consumption rather than the seafood consumption, which is why we specify fish in the MIND diet. Mm -hmm. That's where the evidence resides. Now, we also specify that it not be fried. Right. uh, Because when you fry... You're frying in unhealthy fats and frying out the healthier fats,
1: right? Well, I'm also curious about the red meat restrictions. What is it about red meat that puts it on your questionnaire as something to keep track of and to limit?
0: It's the saturated fat content.
1: Okay. Let's talk about intermittent fasting. I know it's not part of the diet questionnaire. But I am curious about it because I know that we look at fasting blood sugars, and there's also been a focus on a low glycemic diet that's also been part of a recommendation to help protect brain health. Have you done any research on intermittent fasting?
0: I have not done that kind of research.
1: I wonder if any of your study groups, if that comes into play with regard to protecting the brain.
0: There isn't data. To support that one way or the other
1: okay that's interesting to note that's another factor that might be folded in at one time let's talk more about the kinds of things that are recommended to protect the brain red wine how about white wine or other alcoholic beverages what is it about the red wine is it the resveratrol that seems to be especially protective
0: Yes, and that would fall into the same type of scenario that I was discussing with the olive oil. There's quite a bit of research on alcohol consumption and risk of developing Alzheimer's disease and the rate of decline in cognitive abilities with older age, and the findings of those studies are very comparable to what is found with heart disease, that the people who have the lowest rate of disease are the ones that consume a very small, moderate amount of alcohol. The people who don't consume any at all have slightly higher risk than the people who consume more than never, but less than one per day or two per day for men. And then with increasing levels of alcohol consumption, there's a linear increase in in the risk or rate of dementia. So it's not a linear relationship. Now, wine in particular, why wine? Well, the rates for dementia have been shown to not really be all that different for different kinds of alcohol. However, there is, a again, a growing body of literature, but it's not... A hugely developed as yet that the polyphenols in wine and there's certain white wines and certain red wines, I think there's more red wines that are potent in the polyphenolic compounds that are, you know, in a separate literature showing that they have protection for the brain.
1: Mm-hmm. You also mention whole grain breads, pastas and cereals. I'm assuming that what we're looking for here Are the nutrients that are inherent in, say, the germ of the grain, as well as perhaps the fiber?
0: There isn't a literature that supports so much fiber as being individually associated with dementia. Hmm. But we know that diets that are higher in fiber are linked to lower rates of diabetes and heart disease.
1: Mm -hmm. both of
0: which put one at increased risk of dementia. The whole grains, as you brought up, they are higher in vitamin E and various B vitamins that have been individually established as being important for protection against Alzheimer's disease and cognitive decline.
1: Mm -hmm. I want to ask about another factor with regard to dementia risk. And this was published in the September 2016 issue of the Journals of Gerontology series. Tell me about caffeine and dementia risk. And how much caffeine consumption are we talking about in terms of being protective? What about decaffeinated coffee?
0: The literature for caffeine is so inconsistent that at this point in our science and the evidence that we've accumulated thus far we can't say that it is protective against dementia. Okay. There are some studies that do show this, others that don't. When you try to see what are the differences between those studies, they're so inconsistent. For example, it could have been that only the, those studies that show association are only include an, a good number of people that consume a lot of caffeine. hmm And the studies that don't show association just don't get up to that level of consumption. But that's not the story. The studies that do have positive findings, some show benefit at at just one cup per day, others at three to five cups per day, but not at lower levels. So I would say that that literature is so confusing and not consistent enough to say that there is an association there.
1: Well, it must be extremely difficult to tease out all of the variables when you do this nutrition research.
0: Yes, there are methods of doing that. And then there is the randomized intervention trials where, you know, some of them are feeding studies where the researchers, people come in and they feed them their meals so you know exactly what they're consuming. And those studies have been very consistent with the epidemiological investigations for heart disease, for example, and Mm -hmm. for hypertension. So nutrition research is extraordinarily difficult. There's so many issues from the way people consume nutrients and foods to the way they remember them, to the way they report them, to differences in biochemical measures of nutrients and laboratories. (laughs) It's extremely difficult to study, but it makes it fun too, I think.
1: Well, this particular study for the MIND diet included many individuals, and these were all free-living people, and you followed them, if I'm reading correctly, for an average of four to five years and a range of two to ten years. So you have over 900 individuals aged 58 to 98. Yes. Are you still following them?
0: Yes, we are. And we're just beginning to look at different diet patterns, including the Mind Dash and Mediterranean and different food groups, and see if there's a relation with different neuropathologies in the brain. Oh, interesting. Our next foray into examining diet effects on the brain.
1: And are you also looking at exercise patterns?
0: We do. In this cohort, we do measure exercise, physical activity. We do it through self-report as well as through activity monitors that they can wear. And I always adjust statistically for people's level of physical activity when I'm looking at diet.
1: Mm -hmm. Have you found that an individual's weight plays a role in the development or risk of the development of neurodegeneration. So is a person who is at a normal weight at an advantage? Like let's say you've got groups of people who weigh differently. Say you've got someone who's classified as being overweight, but they're basically following this diet. Would you say that weight is a factor or is it not as important
0: as what we're consuming. Weight has a very complex relationship with dementia. And it's very interesting. Weight, blood pressure, cholesterol levels all have this very complex but similar type of relationship. So there's been a number of studies around the world that focused on middle-aged or younger populations and looked at weight, nutrition, and physical activity relations to cardiovascular disease. And then when these populations got old, they went back to them and assessed them for dementia. And so they have 30 or more years of information about people's blood pressure, cholesterol levels, and weight. And what they find is that people who are obese or very overweight in their midlife or have hypercholesterol levels or have hypertension in their midlife years, they are at increased risk of developing dementia in later years. Hmm. They also experience a drop in their cholesterol, blood pressure, and weight levels that is very much steeper than a drop seen in people without dementia. So that if you go to an older population and you measure their blood pressure, cholesterol, and weight, you might not see any association with dementia or you might see that people who are overweight have lower rate of dementia. So it depends very much at what point in life you're assessing that? Now, we know that the disease, the changes in the brain that occur can affect weight. So weight loss is a key feature of Alzheimer's disease. There is some sort of disease effects on the body that occurs at perhaps before we have a clinical diagnosis. Interesting. We're out of time,
1: but I want to thank you for joining me. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Foods With Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgari at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Dr. Morris, thank you so much for being my guest.
0: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.